0: Weia heia 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 ho. Fuju in Dinaway Maganak. Hello, my relatives. Welcome to season one of Reclaiming the Child Welfare Narrative with the Capacity Building Center for Tribes. We recognize the need for change in our child welfare systems, and our desire is to examine how these systems do. Or don't align with our tribal values. We hope to create conversations that honor our interconnectedness and reclaim a child welfare narrative that tells our story. Welcome, everyone. This is our second episode uh, of reclaiming the child welfare narrative. We hope you all were able to listen to the first one of these series titled "Looking Back to Understand Where We Are." My name is Gakadus Paki. My English name is Jackie Crowshew. I come from the fish clan and I'm enrolled in the Turtle Mountain Band in North Dakota and so excited to be here to deliver you meaningful conversations around just celebrating who we are as indigenous people and today we want to talk about the interconnectedness of language and culture we recognize that our language firmly holds our values and our belief systems we know that our children are our sacred gifts and are recognized as a spirit that has been placed here. And we must honor our language and interconnectedness as well as share our stories. And it is time to reclaim our indigenous narrative. So today we have the honor and privilege of talking with James, uh, Gabo Eucalypt, a Native American speaker, educator, and linguist. Personally, I have admired James for many years as he delivers his Ojibwe word of the day. His keynote presentations around the country and Canada, but also have to add that I adore, of course, your wife and your family. So, James, uh why don't you come in and introduce yourself and just let our listeners know who you are and where you come from.
1: Mikwech, Mikwaich, Buju and Dinaway Maganadok, Anin, Kage Gabo and Dijinikas, Mekanak in Dudem, Mekanach Wadjuwing and Dunjiba, Beishoga Kabakong in Dan so what I said there was a traditional Ojibwe protocol greeting. I said, hello, all of my relatives. My name is Kage Gabo. I'm also James Buglich. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm a descendant of Turtle Mountain. I live close to Gakabakong, the place of the falls, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I wanted to say I'm incredibly grateful for this opportunity to have a dialogue and to, to speak with, with my old friend, Miigwech, that's our Ojibwe word for thank you. So I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Beautiful. So James, as we look to reclaim our child welfare narrative, I, you know, I can't help but crave the knowledge and wisdom of our ancestors. Uh, in fact, I was thinking, man, I should buy a bracelet or make a bracelet that reads, what would our ancestors say? <laughs> but maybe one even exists. I don't know. Uh, I just truly believe that we have the answers we need. Um, Yet, I recognize that we keep looking to these larger, dominant systems, hoping to find answers. So today, I just want to spend some time talking with you about our language. Uh, And would love for you, James, just, you know, to hear from you, um, you know, and whether you think the traditional language and its meaning can ground or empower and inspire our communities or influence us to create this new narrative?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And this is a fun way for me to begin. Usually this is the closing to one of my talks or keynotes, but I believe that, uh, well, maybe a little before, when I first began learning the language, every elder every fluent first language speaker i presented tobacco to and asked for help uh, in acquiring the language and learning teachings in uh, learning a traditional perspective from the language every time i spoke to them they told me that if you really want to know the history the culture the philosophy the ethics the spirituality it's all in the language It's all in the language. Later, when I would go into the advanced study of language and linguistics, I would learn that, in fact, it is in the language. Uh, It is this ingenious 10,000-year investment in us. When people asking themselves, well, how will I pass down a teaching? Uh, We know that any monument we create, any book we write, uh, any record we keep, there's an opportunity for that to to go missing or to be destroyed. At some point in history, it just, it happens. Uh, That's the nature of life here. However, human beings speak. We are hardwired to speak the same way that we see, that we feel, that we touch, that we smell, that we taste. And so the idea was, well, we will put the teachings in the language because that's what our ancestors will do. We're at a crossroads in our lives. Uh, and in our generation where we have a number of people who, through the boarding school uh, era, through the residential school uh, legacy, through some of the negative impacts of colonization, who do not have access to their language and no longer use the language. So for me, uh, the language is something that should be treasured and cherished in something that can really guide us in where we should lead our lives. It has worked for 10,000 years, I feel and truly believe that it can work for 10,000 more.
0: Absolutely. Um, I I appreciate you talking about that. So I guess the the bigger question too, is so when you hear about all of these systems, and you know you you hear you hear about equity and diversity and inclusion, and you hear about you know uh, how these systems need to go about change. Um, and you know particularly the child welfare system, which is the system of which I come from, but we hear a lot of talk around also decolonizing or you know there have been talking sessions around redesigning so. You know, how is it that can you talk about you know how we can begin to explore our language when entering into these conversations? Because I know James, you've talked about that importance of culture and the meaning of our words. Um, so how do we begin to 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 bring those teachings into these conversations?
1: I like that one. And there are two important words that you mentioned that we really don't have uh, translations for one would be decolonization. We have a very beautiful way of describing that in Ojibwe. Uh, Because there's really not that is a definitely a post contact word. Uh, it, It has a very modern context. But we do have one called Anjibamatsi. He or she changes their life. And, you know, we have a history of this dating all the way back to uh, the Confederacy of Pontiac. Uh, later, Tecumseh, or in his Shawan Inini, in his Shawnee language, uh, where you had people who were dealing with, you know, the the brutalities of colonization, people who were escaping from The poverty, the brutality, uh, the loss of land that war was bringing with it, uh, resorting to alcohol, uh, resorting to uh, violence. In both, and this is in the late 1700s and the mid 1700s, in even after the War of 1812, when these are taking place. So the idea of changing your life, of setting aside the things that do not serve your life and leading a traditional lifestyle, living the life with the, from that indigenous perspective with the gifts that the creator gave us, our, our sacred laws, our, our ethics, our spirituality, our way of living, in alignment and in balance with the land and that's the next one is well how do we approach this and for me uh there is this beautiful word wiji ittywak, wiji ittywak. and it really means they go along with each other but the stem the root of that word ouija It's used in all of these beautiful contexts. It can be a Ouija wagon. That would be a nominalized version, a noun version of it. It can mean a friend. It can mean an ally. It can mean a partner. It can even mean a spouse. But do is to accompany someone. It's to go along with someone. And in a way where not one nor the other is more dominant or is in an unfair or unbalanced relationship it's where they're uh, traveling along with each other on the path of life in a good way as partners as equals and so when i think of that idea of what is friend what is ally what is partner in the language it is literally someone you are accompanying on the path of life in a good way there is a a wampum belt by the hodenosaunee speaking people and you, in it you see two parallel purple lines along a, a white field and it represents that we're, go- we're traveling together as peers as partners as allies it's not saying that one is more important than the other and uh, in that agreement too the Haudenosaunee speaking people the Iroquois were saying we have no need of you the Dutch people to adopt our language our culture our spirituality our ways we know that you have arrived with your own language, culture, history, and spirituality. At the same time, we do not expect you to make us follow your way as well. We can both travel along together. So Ouija at Diwag would mean that we're doing this together. We're doing this as peers, as partners, as allies. And we can see that in, in our relationships internationally. We can see that in our personal lives as well, with our friends, and you know, how should we actually treat our spouses? We should try to treat our spouses as well as we treat our allies, and we should also treat our allies as well as we treat our spouses. It's a Which, very holistic perspective.
0: Yes, it is, and it's relational, right? I, I I hear um, you know, much of you know, when we're in ceremony, you know, we are always reminding ourselves that we are all related. Uh, And, you know, I I love the idea of, you know, recognizing the words and their meaning and the impact of how we then carry ourselves. Um, And I know I've heard you talk even about, like, the word for great-grandmother, you know. And I, I would love for you to share that with some of our listeners um the way in which what the word actually uh, means
1: oh and that is one of my favorite words uh when i began talking about that the language is carrying the culture or that the culture is in the language this was one of those words that was a spotlight on uh how do we carry this on to the next generations who are coming in that word onakobichigan. onikobichigan that's our word for my great-grandparent, my ancestor, but it's our, also our word for my great-grandchild. And in that part, onik, for some people it's oniko, it means to be interconnected. It means to be interlinked. In uh, one way of looking at it would be like a bike chain, that there are links in a chain going all the way forward and all the way back. Uh, in that B, it's like a thread something thread-like. So I am woven, I'm a thread woven into the same tapestry as you. Whatever affects me will affect you. So if we were to spiritually translate that phrase, culturally translate that phrase, I think it doesn't just mean my ancestor, my great-grandparent, my great-grandchild. It means that being I am inextricably interconnected to, that being I am inextricably linked to. And whatever is going to affect me is going to affect you. I like the idea that our grand great grandparents and our great grandchildren would have the same term for themselves. Sometimes I ask myself if they're actually saying I am you. I am you. It works in this concept of when you mentioned all of my relatives, if you use that term and look at it logically, in Donniko Bichigan, My great-grandparent, my great-grandchild—it implies immediately, uh, with great elegance and precision, this concept of seven generations. That my actions will be affected by someone who came forward, my great-grandparents, and yet my actions too will affect someone coming four generations from now, someone I may never meet, speak to, listen to, see or hold. And in that concept, you—you really get the huge scope of all of my relatives, I am inextricably interconnected to all of my relatives. I am in fact, all of my relatives, and all of my relatives are me. And so it gives you an idea of relationship, and for me also responsibility, because everything I am doing, everything anyone is listening to this program is doing, you are going to affect someone you will never see speak to, listen to, or hold. You will affect someone, not just four generations from now, but seven generations from now. So it, uh, it would be you know, great for us to act in a way that is positively beneficial for those, for those people who have not yet come, but we know will arrive.
0: And you've seen this play out in various systems, again, more specifically with the child welfare system. When we have created um, the teachings or practice around what you just described, and here's an example: out of New Zealand came this family group decision making. I'm not sure if that was the title they used, but it's very similar to what I've, you know, been taught around talking circles, around gathering as equals, listening to one another, being respectful of one another. And you know, sure enough, the dominant system, child welfare system, you know, states started adapting this particular gathering uh, into their programs, where it was almost required, and funding was issued for that. And we have seen such positive results from a practice like that, and that reminds me of what you are saying. Um, James, is that we when we sit down and treat each other as a relative, as equal, um, and kind of remove that that power dynamic that can take over, or like what we learned uh, with our guests previously, you know, uh, the way in which we view our children, you know, uh, the dominant culture, you know, the colonizers' view of children. Was more of possession, as opposed to the way in which our language describes our children, and so I feel like the more we can introduce these these indigenous ways, like family group decision making, um, and I know there are many more, um, we begin to influence the system in a different way, and we as tribes can, you know, continue to be proud and feel the strength of what we know in developing these systems and it gets tricky we talked about it before about you know the funding streams and them, you know the way in which they are um, the requirements that go along with them can complicate how we can actually do the practice work but I feel like we're finally getting to a place where that's being challenged and examined and so, you know, and again, that's where this conversation comes in and celebrating how beautiful and magnificent and rich um people that we are. And again, you know, just a, the word can you tell us for a child uh in Ishinabe is is what?
1: Abenuji. Abenuji. Uh there's a diminutive for the infant for uh the baby that's the ants, but abinuji is the child and you know as i look at that word uh, one etymology uh the story of a of a word what the morphemes the smallest part of a word can uh, how that can influence how we understand that word it has in it a b, a b, uh which is to sit but it's to rest it's also to reside in your lodge uh, so the Abinujians uh, and the Abenuji, they're the ones who are in the lodge that you are looking after, that are in, uh, that that's where they rest, that's where they, that's where they belong. And in fact, with uh, some of the more northern uh, nations, the child will be in the lodge for the first two years of their life. So for their entire life, they are never away from their relatives. And that's, what you don't get, You if you just translate it into baby or a child, you're like, oh, that's someone who is a newborn to, you know, nine or ten. But that idea of up in, to rest, to reside, you get this idea of someone who is always with their grandparents, maybe in some context, their great-grandparents, always with mom, always with their brothers, or sisters, or aunts, or whoever happens to be in the lodge, and they are looked after for those first years. Uh, and again, in the more northern tribes, they'll have actually have a ceremony, a coming out ceremony, where they will walk on the ground for the first time, uh, coming out of the lodge, and now they'll be able to begin exploring the world with their relatives. But it gives you an idea of how uh, that family structure worked and how important and how cherished and how treasured these uh, these little beings were.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also have worked because, you know, living in Minnesota, you know, we have both the Dakota and Anishinaabe here. And, you know, similarly recognize that, you know, their word uh, for child, you know, is has that similar, Meaning you know um, the gift, the sacred beings. Um, so I always run to remind myself, and you know when we are developing products uh, for the capacity building center for tribes, you know, to really embrace um, what these meanings are, and how do we how do we celebrate them, how do we honor them, and go back to them because I think you know, we tend to forget, we start to get caught up in, you know, the need to feel protection coming from a different way, Um, you know, placing children, removing children. And um, so all of this has just been such a wonderful reminder. Uh, And I know you've worked too with, I want to, I read somewhere, James, that um, I maybe, I want to say you worked a bit in Canada on some of those rights of the Anishinaabe child, and um, or you have been familiar with that, and I really admired that because what they did when they were uh, reexamining their child welfare system is, you know, they wanted to look at the the names of their their families, you know, their clans. They wanted, and they called them the rights of the Anishinaabe child. Um, you know, they wanted them to know their cultural and ceremonial practices, their identity, their language, um, and, you know, their purpose in, uh, um, you know, their land and their lifestyles and, you know, what it's like to have a good education or to, you know, be with the family and protect the family. And I just thought that is such a beautiful way to be approaching that child center service um, and using the language to break down what those um, what that is and I know they have a, a website um, that they put together that describes it in a little more detail but I feel like you had some knowledge or affiliation or you were just aware of how one community has done that.
1: Absolutely and it was a, a group that worked with child welfare and worked with families and, you know, these are unalienable rights to uh, an Anishinaabe child. And these were rights, you know, there's there's a dark history behind that. These were rights that were uh, ignored, uh, suppressed, and in some cases, brutally beat out of, of children during the residential school era. That's what uh, the nomenclature, the word for it in Canada is. And here, the boarding school era that, uh, You know and you look at some of them some of the rights um one would be your right to your name and i know some people may sound may think well of course you have a right to your name but when you had some students and i had student i had teachers ojibwe teachers that when they went to school their ojibwe name was taken from them and you know you will be named uh peter jones for you know, just the most generic term, not uh, referencing the Peter Jones, but that will be your name. You will no longer have your Ojibwe name because this is your name. So beginning, you, you have your right to your name. Ishinikazawin uh, is the term they use. How the universe knows you in relationship. And not just your family, not just your clan, your community, but also how, you know, the Montague, the spirits, how the environment knows you. You have that right. You have a right to know uh, who your family is. And that can be through two different ways. One would be uh, your dudem. And that's where the etymology of that word totem comes from in American English. It comes from the Ojibwe word dudem. Uh, A hilarious side note, the people who actually have totem poles have no idea what totem means because it's not in their language family. Uh, They're East, they're usually Northwest Coast people, uh, and and they're in a totally different language family altogether, but your dame would be your clan, almost like a last name. It's comparable, it's not the same, but anyone who is in your clan, you would consider a relative. You, know, you have a right to your parents. You get to Zimuk, uh, those who are raising you, those who are looking after you, those who are almost kind of like growing you. Um, because in the boarding school era, you were raised at school rather than raised by your parents. So uh, and then of course, you have the and I'm uh, you have a right to your language, moon. you have a right to your initiative, your identity, who you are as a person, you are not now someone who is being assimilated into the dominant system, you have a right to be you. You have a right to exist. In fact, Anishinaabe woman, you have a right to that. And in a curious note, uh, I think the pre-contact word, Anishinaabe, I think it means human being, rather than just Ojibwe person or uh, Anishinaabe woman, Ojibwe language speaking person. I think it means a human being. I like the double note of that. The double uh, entendre that it means you have a right to your identity you also have a right to be a human being in all of those unalienable rights that accompany that so I think in all of those words they they inform us you know the the dudem uh, the clan who uh, your relatives are who your family is how you're known so I think those are incredibly important and they're important to note too it's a hard discussion to have, when we are almost at having discovered, you know, over well it will be, uh, with no doubt, over ten thousand bodies found at, at residential schools, in both the United States and Canada, and that that was their experience, and that as we move to to ameliorate and to transform a relationship that's taken place for a long time, to acknowledge that and acknowledge ways we can move forward, and I think that. These basic rights of the child it's like a beautiful step forward. and to have us define it using our language, not the translation, but these are what these the words that we want. and there are words.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I you know again, a previous conversation was about how you know the boarding schools, residential schools, and, and just how that's playing out today. In our child welfare system, um, and just you know, seeing that thread and how do we disrupt that? How do we change that? Um, and I, and for those that may wonder, okay, who was it that brought in these um, these rights of the child? And it was, uh, I think, it was Treaty Three out of Ontario um, that did some of that work. So I just wanted to make sure we give you some direction if you are wanting to learn more about how that was done, but. Again, this brings me more to hear from you. I've, I've I've had the the pleasure of listening to some of your keynotes, James, and and your blogs, and uh, and absolutely love your Ojibwe word of the day. Um, I a lot of times just screenshot it because uh, I know we had that wicked snowstorm the other day, and um, you know you came on and and to give us you know our. Uh, our word for you know what we were experiencing. It's just it's such a pleasure, and it brings me so much, so much pride and joy. Um, so thank you f- for being you and and always teaching us. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about those seven sacred you know teachings. That, the seven generations. Like I I really um, hold that dear and key again, to what they are, you know, in our language, what they mean. Um, So if you don't mind, could you could you spend some time talking about that?
1: I would love to. Uh, In fact, one of my life goals is to have an opportunity to speak about the seven generations and the seven grandfather teachings uh, all over the world. So. We've had a moment already to speak about the seven generations, this idea of being interconnected, of being interconnected to your great grandparents and your great grandchildren. And in that space of time, there is seven generations. And for uh, Anishinaabe spirituality, uh, philosophy, ethics, there is this concept of uh the good life, I like to translate it or interpret it into English as a life of peace and balance, a life without conflict with your relatives or your environment, a life without contradiction, saying one thing and then doing another, a holistic life. And we have been, um, our ancestors have passed down a way for us to do that. And often in the language, I've heard it described as means great, dib is to measure or to relate, and akon is with a woodlike article in the hand. Some speakers, when they hear dibakkonege, will joke around and giggle a little bit because it means judge now. What they're speaking about is a ruling, it's a sentence, Uh, the woodlike article they're holding in their hand, it's a gavel. However, we look at this from a pre-contact perspective. What they're actually discussing is the okich, the sacred pipe stem. Akonege, and akonege would mean law. It's literally to point the pipe stem. And what you might not know hearing that is, okay, that's a wood-like article in the hand. What it's implying culturally is that this has been something that has been meditated upon and mediated with our sacred pipe. Maybe one of our most Important holy gifts that we've been given—to ask for help, to give thanksgiving, to uh, to pray, to acknowledge relationship with our relatives and with other nations, to bring peace. And so, if you didn't understand that, you wouldn't know that these were things that had been the four, that the four sacred medicines had been used with—with gijik, with cedar, with asema, with tobacco, with wingushk, with sweetgrass, with or it depends on your dialect and how you describe the word sage and that so these are held in the most uh in like the highest opinion in in belief that this is something that uh has uh, has observed that you are swearing before god to you know to lead a life this way and we call these also the seven grandfather teachings. When you translate that, uh for some people when they use an English description of it. And those are saki it, love, de debween, truth, wai virtue, righteousness, honesty, dabasein de zuin, humility, menachi itdiwin, respect. Zung de ewen, strength of heart, courage or bravery and wisdom or intelligence uh, as a linguist something i'd like to note is ojibwe is a very verb-based language there are some guesses because uh, it's so vast that seven eighths of the words may be actual verbs uh, so it is always a it's, a it's a it's a it's a language that moves it acts it feels it relates so each one of those, rather than just being a noun, it's actually a verb. They love one another. He or she speaks the truth. And I think that would have been their perspective. This isn't an abstract noun. This is something that you do. We respect one another. I am, I am humble. He or she has a strong heart. He or she is wise. So I think that's always really important to note.
0: I absolutely agree. And even as I begin learning different ways, you know, being a grandma now of trying to live that good life and walk that path of truth and honesty and humility, you know, I have learned other ways, too, of like meditation i know because of the pandemic i haven't been in the ceremonies uh, as much as i usually am and so i've had to seek out other ways and you know smudging and meditating and similarly you know it talks about love and that existing potential and that you know it, it's it's not a feeling it's an ability you know it's a responsibility and you know i'm i'm hearing that as well in the way you describe it and and just the, the generosity of our spirits.
1: I love that word. I love that word for love in Ojibwe. Uh, I don't think it's like a definition of right. love. I I see it as a description. I in that word for truth, debwe. I think it's to speak to a certain extent. I wonder if the spirit of the language is actually saying, I can't define something eternal to you. And we <laughs> can't really use words. describe love it's ineffable it's beyond thought which is which is a great it's the psychological insight of the language that i think our ancestors have passed down like if you're thinking that you're going to love someone you're you have the wrong approach already in that word it has zog in it and i think that means to emerge Mm -hmm. it's something that is emerging from deep inside us and we can see words that describe the same thing that's a friend of mine's indian name means here she comes from behind a mountain and, and into sight but really that word from a spiritual context it means the sun rising the sun is coming from beyond the horizon and illuminating the world and like love like unconditional love i think this is an example of it not a definition not a this is how you do it it is you see a living example of how does Kijé mana do how does the kind spirit how does the creator love us and it's something like the sun shining on everyone and everything it's an example of how unconditional love can be i know we're in the middle of a snowstorm we just finished a big blizzard and it's cold here in minnesota but yeah it's 10 below right now but uh in like just uh not so long soon it'll be the zagi bagagi' the budding moon in that word zagi is that zag again somewhere deep within these barren branches right now uh in the ground there are seeds that will emerge zagi the leaf will emerge and when these medicines, when these plants grow, when the food grows, the manomen, the wild rice, the mandamen, the corn, it will feed everyone and everything unconditionally. The medicines will heal unconditionally. If uh, as I like to put it, a priest or a prostitute, a thief or a teacher, we see it in that word unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And when we ask ourselves, well, does the love in my life look like that is that how I'm acting towards my relatives and that's going to inform if I'm leading a good life if I'm leading a life of peace and balance without Mm -hmm. conflict or contradiction Mm a holistic life and so having that approach in in our relationships in Mm -hmm. our partnerships in uh, in how we change our lives too, because mm-hmm. it can be personally transformative as well. If you mm-hmm. can take that moment in meditation, and in ceremony, and in prayer and contemplation to observe yourself mm-hmm. and asking yourself, how does that relationship work with the people mm-hmm. I'm I'm going along in the path of life with, and how am I doing that to myself?
0: Mm-hmm. And and just and really truly because of some of the intergenerational traumas that, you know, we are walking with, even though it might not have been our trauma, it's our ancestors trauma, how do we be responsible to our own spirits? And how do we learn how to truly, truly love ourselves? Because a lot of times, we measure it against something that's unrealistic, and we have such critical thoughts and thinking, and instead, trying to just temper that with you know, may I have ease, may I have love, may I feel joy, so we can in turn give that to others. And that is what I hear often, you know, walking with our spirits, not with our egos. So when we're making decisions about our families that we're working with, our own families, you know, how do we bring our spirits to that, uh, to our work? Um, so I have... Can I jump thinking? in for
1: one moment? Yes, you yes. You really inspired me with that. You Absolutely. Know, if I am all of my relatives, and all of my relatives are me, as a, the culture, as the spirituality, as the language, the linguistics point out, if it is my sacred law, if it's my responsibility to love all of my relatives, and I am all of my relatives, should I not love myself as well? And that is a hard one to get across because so many people will see that as egocentric, egotistical behavior. But no, if you are all of your relatives and you have to love all of your relatives, then you should love yourself. And that can be really hard in a society that I think is very egocentric, is very egotistical, that can really easily blur that line between self-care and self-love and compassion and empathy in pity for oneself, uh, pity in a way that we will all go through human experiences that will be difficult. We will endure loss. We will endure pain and sadness. And can I have that empathy for myself as well as those others? And it also tells us, well, how do we treat our children? What was the historical precedent for how we loved our children? And it has to be something like that, that it was that kind of care, that kind of concern, that kind of uh, that kind of love for them, and that that would inform how we should act towards them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think too, in knowing our roles, I I think that has you know changed, um, you know over the decades, and and you know relearning new roles and and how how that how that feeds us. Um, but again, I'm looking at the time, and I could listen and learn. From you, you know all day long, James. it's just been such an honor and enlightening time you know uh, spent with you today. and you know as we set to close, I just want to make sure you know if there's anything else that you feel you know as we pause here, is there anything else that you think is important um, for our listeners to hear or that you want to share? Um, and if you feel comfortable with everything, you know, we've talked about, so so be it. Um, but I just want to leave you with any um, comments to, to wrap this up.
1: Uh, well, first, I'd love to say Meguej Bisauwieig. Thank you all so much for listening. That would be the traditional ending to a speech, to a talk. To thank you for your time, for these moments of your precious life that you've spent with me. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, Jackie, I totally agree. I could I have spent my life talking about this. It's been my goal because it brings me, it brings me joy, it brings me insight, it brings me peace and balance. And that if I've had an opportunity to share with you all in leading a good life from an Ojibwe perspective, a life with love, with truth, with honesty, with humility, with respect for one another, with strength of heart, the courage and bravery to lead that life. Ultimately, giving us the intelligence and wisdom to act in a way that will not just bring peace to all of our relatives now, but to someone coming seven generations as well. And to also have the opportunity to heal someone who may no longer be here, someone who went through the legacy of colonization, who went through boarding school, because we're still inextricably interconnected to them. We're still writing our great grandparents' story as we live. And uh, for the opportunity to share this with all of you. Miigwech, Bissendawi. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Uh, miigwech to you, James. And miigwech to everyone joining us today. Uh, and please uh, join us for our next conversation. We're going to bring in Ethleen Ironcloud Two Dogs as we explore the Lakota teachings and ways to step back and just discuss what it would look like for our, our Native communities to be happy and. Healthy and whole. So I look forward to that conversation as well. And again, thank you, James. Uh, take care, everybody way e uh, hey a uh, ho ho-way-oh. way e oh. uh, hey-oh. Uh.